Section 33 of Christmas and Christmas Lore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Christmas and Christmas Lore by Thomas G. Crippen. The Christmas Feast. Let us now suppose that we have hung up the holly and ivy, not forgetting the mistletoe. We have listened to the waits and the carol singers, laughed at the mummers, and paid the usual toll to the wassail bowl. We have lent a hand toward bringing home the yule log, eaten our carp or herring salad, laid up all needful provision in our own modest larder, and duly responded to the call of the Christmas bells. And now, it may be, we are accepting an invitation to dine at the great house of the village. Abraham Lincoln is reported to have said that, he thought the creator had rather a liking for the common people he made so many of them but the creators of christmas literature seem in general to be otherwise minded for in almost every literary or poetic description of a christmas feast from an earlier pen than that of dickens it is the feast of the palace the castle or at least the manor-house where the squire and his worthy dame keep open house throughout the festive season no doubt here as elsewhere distance lends enchantment to the view indisputably the good old times as pictured to us by herrick and wither walter scott and washington irving have a sort of glamour which makes us wish they could be recalled but if we were able to do so it is likely we should find the price more than we were willing to pay sir roger de coverley and lady bountiful were excellent people in their way take them for all and all we shall not look upon their like again but they believed with all the assurance of religious conviction in the divine right of the landlord quote, to determine who should be associated with him in the cultivation of the soil quote. and if in those good old days tenant or labourer had so much as dreamed of thinking for himself or voting against the squire or saying his prayers otherwise than according to the act of uniformity, the very least he could have looked for would have been to be set down for a Puritan who could have no possible interest in Christmas or any of its festivities. The ideal English Christmas, to which the fancy of later generations looked longingly backward, was that of Queen Bess or James I, before Puritanism had grown strong enough to be troublesome to such a christmas feast let us transport ourselves in imagination the hall is decked with holly picturesquely stuck among the antlers and old armour that are its usual adornments the remains of the yule log are still discernible on the hearth the guests are seated at the long tables with strict regard to social rank a sound of music is heard outside the jester gambles in with some extravagant antic and all the company rise in honour of the boar's head carried by the chief cook on a silver dish wreathed with bay having in its mouth a lemon or a roasted pippin and in its ears sprigs of rosemary it is closely followed by the minstrels and as many of the upper servants as can be mustered carrying the subsidiary dishes and the procession moves slowly up to the high table singing the never-to-be-forgotten carol the boar's head in hand bear i bedecked with bays and rosemary and i pray you my masters be merry 
quote estus in convivio the boar's head as i understand is the chief service in this land which thus be decked with a gay garland servite cum cantico our steward hath ordained this in honour of the king of bliss who this day to be served is in regenensi atrio caput apri defero redens laudes domino footnote this is the form in which the carol has been regularly sung at oxford for the last two hundred years the older recension printed by winken de word in fifteen twenty one gives the third verse as follows be glad lords both more or less for this hath ordained our steward to cheer you all this christmas the boar's head with mustard there are several other boar's head songs ranging from the sixteenth to the eighteenth century but they are of little interest the older ones are mere doggerel and the latter ones with allusions to ceres and bacchus meleager the caledonian boar etc have nothing in common with genuine folk song they are simply academical jokes End footnote. the ceremonial bringing in of the boar's head with music is a custom of great antiquity it is distinctly recorded as having been performed according to the manner at a royal banquet in eleven seventy of its meaning something will be said hereafter as to the subordinate dishes here is a rhyming list from a manuscript of the fifteenth century if of no other interest it tells us what in those days was accounted good eating then comes the second course with great pride the cranes the herons the bitterns by their side the partridge the plover the woodcock and the snipe larks in hot scow footnote sauce and footnote for the ladies to pike firmity for pottage and venison fine umbles of the dough and all that ever comes in capons well baked and knuckles of the roe raisins and currants and other spices mo good drink also luscious and fine blood of alamein romne and wine swan was a standard dish in great houses at christmas tide according to the duke of northumberland's household book fifteen twelve five swans were dished for christmas day three for new year's day and four for twelfth day a peacock was a favorite christmas dish of old time skinned before roasting reclothed with his own feathers and the beak either gilded or holding a sponge saturated with blazing spirit the custom was that the peacock should be brought in not by a servant but by the most distinguished lady of the company he was confessedly dry meat and was served with abundance of gravy though we venture to doubt the story of three fat weathers being needed to make gravy for one peacock turkey first appears as christmas fare in fifteen twenty four bustard continued to figure in christmas menus till the end of the eighteenth century but the bird has since become practically extinct in england profusion rather than refinement was characteristic of those old christmas feasts in twelve forty eight when king henry the third was keeping his christmas at winchester he ordered his treasurer to fill westminster hall with poor people and feast them for a whole week richard the second was even more prodigal in his christmas feasting when westminster hall was enlarged and embellished 
he provided twenty-eight oxen three hundred sheep and game and fowls without number feeding ten thousand guests during several days one old writer john of salisbury tells of a christmas feast that began at three o'clock in the afternoon and ended at midnight when delicacies were brought from such remote places as constantinople syria egypt and babylon here is a bill of fare about the year fifteen sixty or fifteen seventy including sixteen principal dishes one a shield of brawn with mustard two a boiled capon three a boiled piece of beef four a chine of beef roasted five a neat's tongue roasted six a pig roasted seven chewets baked footnote probably a kind of savoury mince pie eight a goose roasted nine a swan roasted ten a turkey roasted eleven a haunch of venison roasted twelve a pasty of venison thirteen a kid with a pudding in the belly fourteen an olive pie fifteen a couple of capons sixteen a custard or dowset sixteen other dishes were made up of salads fricassees devised paste and sundries the roast beef of old england has been for ages the great christmas fare the legend of sir loin knighted by charles the second is no doubt apocryphal though the table on which the ceremony is said to have been performed still exists in several places to vouch for it but a baron of beef that is two sirloins not cut asunder but joined by the end of the backbone is still roasted for the king's table every christmas day as to what may be called the accessories of the old-time christmas feast bread of course goes without saying and there must have been some provision of roots and pot herbs as beet carrots colworts parsnips salsify skirrets and turnips potatoes were only introduced in fifteen eighty six and were a rarity until after the restoration the firmity or frumenty of the old rhyming bill affair according to the oldest formula now extant was wheat boiled till the grains burst and when cool strained and boiled again with broth or milk and yolks of eggs this was the legitimate accompaniment of fat venison or fresh mutton in more recent times frumity was a mawkish concoction of stewed wheat boiled up with milk raisins sugar and spices it was lately and perhaps still is the regulation christmas eve supper in many rural parts of yorkshire elsewhere it was the first thing taken on christmas morning ale posset being the last thing drunk on christmas eve in shropshire the custom was that every farmer should set aside a sack of wheat for the poor from which on st thomas's day his wife or daughter doled out a pint or a quart to each comer according to their poverty and the size of their family this was to make frumenty for the christmas feast the custom survived here and there till about eighteen seventy but generally before that time the farmers gave money to the parson instead to provide clothing for the poor the aforesaid frumenty was probably an early stage in the evolution of what afterwards became plum porridge and this in turn about sixteen seventy or a little earlier stiffened into plum pudding 
that plum porridge was indeed fearfully and wonderfully made one of its simpler forms was beef or mutton broth thickened with brown bread half-boiled raisins currants prunes mace and gingerbread were added and when thoroughly done the mixture was served in a semi-liquid state another recipe is to boil beef and veal with sack old hock and sherry lemon and orange juice double refined sugar raisins currants and prunes add cochineal nutmeg cinnamon and cloves the whole to be thickened with brown bread and served in a tureen this delectable mess was served at st james's palace as late as eighteen o six possibly later sir roger de coverley is made to say spectator number two hundred sixty nine that he had hopes of a rigid dissenter when he saw him enjoying his plum porridge in these various recipes prunes i e plums form an essential part gradually they seem to have been supplanted by raisins etc so that a plum pudding may be defined as a pudding without plums lucas unknown lucendo a more serious misnomer is current in rural parts of somerset where raisins are commonly called figs a real fig is a dote fig and our customary christmas treat is figgy pudding but what of the christmas pie that was also a marvellous concoction in the true etymological sense of the word here is a recipe wording modernized from a manuscript written in thirteen ninety four take a pheasant a hare a capon two partridges two pigeons and two conies chop them up take out as many bones as you can and add the livers and hearts two kidneys of sheep forcemeat made into balls with eggs pickled mushrooms salt pepper spice and vinegar boil the bones in a pot to make good broth put the meat into the crust of good paste made craftily into the likeness of a bird's body pour in the liquor close it up and bake it well and so serve it forth with a head of one of the birds at one end and a great tail at the other and divers of his long feathers set cunningly all about him the christmas pie of herrick's time was filled with neat's tongues chicken eggs raisins orange and lemon peel sugar and various spices it is not difficult to imagine the stages of evolution or devolution by which this eventuated into our modern mince pie and in like manner we may well believe that the same ancestry with somewhat different environment gave birth to the renowned squab pie of cornwall but we must pause here else we shall be led on to treat of mackerel pie maggoty pie and so many others that they say the devil dares not show himself in cornwall lest he should be baked in a pie in hone's table book volume two page five hundred six the following is quoted from the newcastle chronicle of sixth january seventeen seventy quote, monday last was brought from howick to berwick to be shipped for london for sir henry gray baronet a pie the contents whereof were as follows that is two bushels of flour twenty pounds of butter four geese two turkeys two rabbits four wild ducks two woodcocks six snipes and four partridges two neat's tongues 
two curlews seven blackbirds and six pigeons it was made by mrs dorothy patterson housekeeper at hoek it was near nine feet in circumference at bottom weighs about twelve stones will take two men to present it to table it is neatly fitted with a case and four small wheels this may serve for the christmas feast of what people will persist in calling the good old times the times of semi-starvation for the many and of riotous luxury for the few we appreciate them most highly as we look backward through the mist of ages and fancy ourselves at the festive board of course above the salt while the minstrels played and sang and the jesters cracked their smartest jokes and perhaps the celebrated dance of fools was performed the reckless profusion had one redeeming feature there would be an enormous overplus of broken meat which on the following day would be distributed among the poor in this sense it was quite a pardonable exaggeration to say a christmas gamble oft could cheer the poor man's heart for half the year it may be remarked that sometimes these old christmas feasts borrowed the one commendable element of the older roman saturnalia and set forth for once in the year the brotherhood of humanity it was not merely that the heir with roses in his shoes that night might village partner choose it was not unusual for country squires of the better class to keep open house for all comers during christmas time when minstrels and dancers flocked to the hall and crowds enjoyed right good fare we read of one john carmineau in cornwall who used to do this during the whole twelve days of the feast providing for his guests twelve fat bullocks thirty-six sheep twenty cornish bushels of wheat with hogs lambs and fowls of all sorts still better at penshurst the home of the sydneys in queen elizabeth's time the distinctions of rank and fortune were provisionally set aside rich and poor equally shared the squire's bounty no great salt cellar divided the noble from the ignoble guests and the dishes did not grow coarser as they receded from the high table no wonder that in such cases the christmas feast became a bond of union between all classes and begat friendly relations between lord and peasant which were not easily disturbed it was well surely that not only from the pulpit but also from the festal board this gospel should be annually proclaimed that he whose birthday was kept with joy and hallowed mirth was born to be not only king of kings and lord of lords but as saint francis had taught long before to be little brother of all mankind during the latter half of the eighteenth century the increasing prosperity of the nation and improved means of conveyance led to a great increase of travelling especially among the wealthier classes a natural result was a great increase and general improvement of inns which at festive seasons like christmas made ample provision for expected guests hone table book volume two page forty three gives the christmas bill of fare of the bush inn at bristol for the year eighteen hundred it numbered one hundred fifty items including besides beef mutton lamb veal pork and venison in every conceivable variety hares rabbits thirty-nine sorts of birds 
sixteen sorts of fish, three of shellfish, ten kinds of soup, including turtle, boar's head, pies of various kinds, mince pies, jellies, etc. But, strange to say, there is no mention of plum porridge or plum pudding. What has here been said about feasting has, no doubt, a distinct reference to the old English Christmas. But wherever, throughout the world, the festival of the Nativity is observed, feasting has a conspicuous place in the program, and often, as is surely fitting, the feasting gives occasion for generous hospitality. In Serbia, for example, it has long been the custom for every well-to-do family to keep open house for three days, and all comers, friend or enemy, stranger or beggar, are welcome to a place at the table. End of section 33